It is such a joy and an honor to get to share with you guys this morning. And we as a church are going to be entering into a new sermon series for the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at the parable of the lost son, or maybe you've heard it called the parable of the prodigal son. And each week we're going to look at this story from the perspective of a different character in the story. So naturally there's going to be some overlap each week, um, but as always, every time we open God's word, there are new truths and new insights to discover. So we're going to get really familiar with this passage over the next little season in our church. Today I get the joy of walking us through this parable from the perspective of the youngest brother in the story. And so for the kids who are here today and for the kids who are at home on Zoom, I have a question for you. I want you to think about something special that you've at one time in your life had and then you've lost it. Maybe a favorite stuffed animal or a favorite blanket or a favorite toy. So think of something in your mind that you lost. Now would anyone be willing to share with me what they've maybe at some point lost? Maybe you found it later, but at some point. Anyone want to share? Oh, sorry, I didn't see you back there. Yeah, what did you lose? Oh my goodness, you dropped one of your Legos down a drain pipe. And so I'm just going to assume that you probably never found it. You did find it. Oh, wonderful. How did you feel when you found it? Oh, good. Well, and when you found that, how did it make you feel? Um, a little bit weird. A little bit weird. Okay. Kate, did you have something you wanted to share? Um, I agree with him. Losing Legos is pretty bad. I lost one Lego cat, and I have one dog that was still losing Legos. And that was really bad. Oh, my goodness. And if, if you found those things, how did it make you feel? Yeah, it's pretty exciting when you find them. So that is kind of, kids, what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about a story where God finds something that's really special to him, and then we're going to look at what was God's response. How did he celebrate finding that thing? So for you kids, what I want you to do is I want you to draw a picture. You can use the back of one of the sheets on your clipboard. I want you to draw a picture of something you lost that stuffed animal, that toy, and then I want you to write some words beside your picture of how you felt when you found it or how you think you would feel. And after church today, I want you to come show me your pictures. I really want to see them. Come find me. I would love to see them. So church, before we dive into this parable, I want um, to give a little bit more context of what is happening, why this story is even being told in the first place. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We're going to see what prompted Jesus to even share this story. So starting in verse 1 of Luke 15, it says, So the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They were drawing near to hear Jesus. And it says, The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we see here that the religious leaders at this time are grumbling 
which is no big surprise. That happened often back then. Um, and they're, they're frustrated. They're maybe even a little bit offended that Jesus would spend time with sinners and that he would even go so far as to eat with them, to, to fellowship with them in that way. And remember, this is, this is coming on you know, 14 chapters of Luke before this, it, where you see Jesus hanging out with all kinds of different people. You see Jesus performing miracles around all kinds of different people, healing all kinds of different people. Both those people who uh, would consider themselves religious back then, and also those people who the Pharisees would have called sinners back then. And so in response to their grumbling, Jesus says, let me tell you three quick stories. And the first story he says uh, is a story of a lost sheep. We see this in, starting in verse 4. He talks about how um, a shepherd would leave the 99 sheep to go after the one sheep. And then we see in verse 7, he remarks about how there will be greater rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 who are righteous. And then Jesus says, let me tell you a second story. He says, let me tell you a story about a lost coin. And he starts talking about the diligent seeking to find this coin. And he talks about the joy that exudes from this woman when she finds her lost coin. And then we see a familiar repetition from the previous story. In verse 10, it says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it seems that maybe Jesus is putting an emphasis here on the rejoicing that happens in heaven when we repent for our sins. Maybe that's even more important than something was lost and is found. Uh, maybe that's what he wanted the Pharisees to understand, is that there's rejoicing in heaven when we repent and turn back to him. So then we enter into the third story, which is what uh, we are going to be living in this story for the next few weeks as a church. And um, today, as we look at the story through the eyes of the younger son, I'm going to remark on three different things. First, he runs away. Second, he runs dry. And third, he runs home. And how ultimately there he is restored. So the story tells us there's two brothers. And then if you pick up in verse 12... It says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And it says the father divided his property between them. Now, some things we can maybe assume from this story, I might be stretching a little bit here, but it seems like the son had a loving father. It seems like he was provided for. He had a home. He had a future. He had an inheritance waiting for him one day. So can you imagine what it must have felt like for him to come to his father and to say this? He, he essentially is saying, I wish you were already dead, so can you go ahead and give me what is mine? Or, or maybe he's saying, I have no need for you anymore. Can I go ahead and get my inheritance and leave? I, I can't think of any other phrase that would be more disrespectful to say to your parents. And you know, it makes me wonder, I think about... Like, what must have been going on in the heart of this younger brother? Like, how unhappy or confused or deceived do you have to be to get to a place where you want to go and say this to your father? 
You know, culturally at this time, whenever the father died, the two sons would have inherited all that the father had. And a big part of that would have been inheriting the responsibility to continue the family business, to continue the family farm, to take care of all that had been there and to continue to grow it. So in reality, this younger son, he's not just saying, I wish you were dead or I have no need for you anymore. He's also saying, I don't want any part of the family business. I, I don't, I, essentially, he's saying, I want to cut ties with our family and leave and go my own way. You know, at this time in history, this request would have been even more unheard of than it is today. I, for me, it's shocking. Like, as I, as I really think about what the son is saying, that is shocking to me. But it would have been even more shocking back then. There was such a high value placed on obedience to your father and to your family. I think we can't even begin to imagine how hurtful this would have been to the father. We can't begin to imagine how much anger maybe we would expect this to evoke from the father. But in the story that Jesus is telling, we see the father agree to this outrageous request. It it says that he divided the property between the two sons. What that meant at this time is the younger son would have gotten about a third of the wealth. The older son would have gotten twice as much. And so the father essentially cashes out that portion of the inheritance. He gives it to the younger son. And we can assume that this had at least somewhat of a financial burden on the family. He sold a third of his property. He gave a third of his assets to help fund this little escape for the younger son. And as any of you who are parents can imagine, and even those of us who are not parents, there was tremendous relational loss that occurred here as well. I think the father could probably only assume that this is the last time he would see his son. And so let's pick up in verse 13. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So the word squander in Webster's Dictionary, it says um, to spend foolishly or to waste. So this younger son, he had a fairly good life, it seems, from the outside looking in. A loving father, a gracious and generous father. He was provided for. He had a future business to run. And he trades it all in to do things his own way. And he begins to waste all of his money on reckless living, on temporal pleasures. And this brings us to the point in the story where he runs dry. Another way you could say it is he hits rock bottom. Picking up in verse 14, it says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So he once was a fairly wealthy man. He's now spent, foolishly wasted, spent all that he has on reckless living, living for his own pleasures, and now he's lost it all. And on top of that, a severe famine has hit, and he's hit rock bottom. 
How do we know he hit rock bottom? Well, the way we know is that he agrees to go and work in the fields with pigs. And for a Jewish person at this time, feeding pigs would have been hitting rock bottom. Uh, Pigs were an animal that the Jews considered unclean. And, And it doesn't just say that he was feeding the pigs. It goes so far as to say he longed to or he desired to be able to eat the food with the pigs. I don't think things could have gotten any lower for a Jewish person at this time. And so he's run away, he's run dry, and now he decides to run home. And I would love to be able to tell you guys that he realized his sin and he ran home because he knew that he had this loving father that would accept him back, but that's not really what scripture tells us happens. Look at verse 17. It says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my, hi- of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Instead of running home and and banking on his father's unconditional love and acceptance, instead he devises a plan. And he he begins to think, if I were like one of the servants in my father's home, I would be better off than I am in my current situation. And he doesn't think that his father could ever have favor or acceptance for him apart from him earning his way back into the family by being one of his father's hired servants. Friends, does this sound familiar to you? How often do we run away and do things our own way and then devise a plan to earn our way back into favor with God? Or how often do we think we have to perform to belong to this family of God? For just a moment, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the younger son so imagine that you have, um, you've wished your father dead, you've taken your inheritance, a third of his wealth, you've run away, you've spent it all foolishly, you've hit rock bottom, and now you've decided, I'm going to come home. How might you imagine your father responding when you come home? Maybe with anger? Maybe with shame and embarrassment over you? I imagine maybe even shutting you out and saying, I'm sorry, you had your chance and you blew it. It's too late. I think all of these could be natural responses of a father in this situation. But let's look at what happens as Jesus tells this story. And as we look at this, I want you to think about how this translates to how God, our Father, sees us every time we run back to him. So, Picking up in verse 20, it says, The son arose and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. So we imagined how the father could have responded. Look at what he really did. Verse 20 says that the father sees him from a long way off. I imagine in order for that to happen, the father was sitting and watching and waiting for the day when his son might come back. It says the father comes running, and the Greek word here is even closer to the word racing, like racing with desperation and urgency to get to his son. And theologians say that perhaps the father was racing in order to get to the son before anyone else in the town did, because people in the town would have hated the son for what he had done to this family. And then, you know, oh, and in culturally, at this time, um, a father of that age and that class, he would have walked slowly and dignified everywhere he went. But this, the word racing indicates that he dropped his dignity and he just ran towards his son. And, and so from the son's perspective, like, what do you think he was thinking? How big do you think his eyes got, or how far do you think his jaw dropped as he saw his father drop his dignity and race towards him? Verse 20 tells us, too, that the father embraced him and kissed him, instantly restoring that broken relationship. Do you think the son could have ever imagined that kind of forgiveness for what he had done? Verse 21 through 23, it says, as the son is kind of laying out this plan to come earn his way back into the family, the father cuts him off. And the father restores him fully and starts showering him with gifts. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of think maybe it should be the other way around. Maybe the son should have brought some kind of offering or gift to the father. But no, it says the son shows up empty-handed and the father graciously starts giving gifts. It says he tells the servant, bring the best robe and clothe him. I don't know what this son uh, was like in that moment. Because he's been living in the fields with pigs, I imagine that he probably didn't smell that great. He probably had dirty clothes. They were probably tattered. Uh, And so the father says, get a robe. I want to clothe him. It doesn't just say get a robe. He says get the best robe. And some theologians say that that robe signified righteousness a robe of righteousness, that the, the robe was a symbol to, to say you are restored to right standing with the Father. And then he says, get a ring and put it on his hand. And that ring, that ring would have indicated power and wealth and status. And he says, get shoes and put them on his feet. So remember, the son is coming back thinking, I want to be like one of my father's hired servants. And many of those servants would not have worn shoes in that day And the father says, no, get shoes and put them on his feet. The father is symbolizing a restored identity and belonging to the family. And then he says, let's have a feast. Get the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate. The younger son runs home, and he's completely restored. Now, we know that this is just a parable. This is just a story that Jesus told to a crowd one day. But even though it's just a story... Jesus' words are significant. And this story really mirrors our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We run away. We have this desire to do things our own way. We get to a point where we come to our senses and we realize that nothing in this world is ever going to satisfy us apart from the Father. And then we run back to Him. 
And we come just as we are. We don't, we don't come when we have it all together. We don't come when we have some great gift to bring. We, we come hungry and dirty and empty-handed. And our Father sees us and he races towards us. And he restores us. He begins showering us with gifts of his grace and his love. He gives us a new family identity. He removes our shame and covers us with righteousness that we do not deserve. Righteousness that comes from Jesus because Jesus lived a sinless life. He died in our place. He defeated death. He was raised from the dead. He went to heaven. He seated at the right hand of God the Father. And because of that, we can be clothed with his righteousness. We have a father who longs to race out to his children and to restore us. Verse 24 says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. What a beautiful picture of our redemption. So to close, I have two application questions for us this morning. First, in what way do you need to run back to the Father and be restored? And I want to ask that question today to two different types of people. First, maybe you're listening today and you've never made a decision to place your faith fully in Christ. You've never trusted him fully with your life. Maybe you're realizing that you are unworthy, that, that you are living like the pigs, that you are dirty and empty, and you need a Savior. And if this is you, I would ask you, would you be willing to run home to him? Because he's watching and he's waiting, and he wants to race out to you and restore you fully. Or maybe you are listening today, and you're already a follower of Christ, but maybe you've been running away, doing your own thing, squandering God's grace, running after worthless pleasures. And so if that is you, would you be willing to run home today? Because he's waiting and he's watching and he wants to race out to you and fully restore you to his family. My second application question for us is, Redeemer, are we a church that would be known for hanging out with sinners the way that Jesus did? The Pharisees at the beginning of this chapter, they're appalled that Jesus would hang out with sinners. And sometimes, y'all, I wonder if the American church looks a little bit and thinks a little bit like the Pharisees did. Luke 15.10 says, There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Redeemer, are we a church that is inviting in sinners and rejoicing with the angels when they turn back to God. I have a friend named Christy. She lives in the Charlotte, Gastonia area. And about five years ago, Christy felt God leading her to minister to women in the sex industry. And so she and some of the friends of her, some of the women in her church, they started going to this adult entertainment club. And they got to know the women there, and they would bring gifts to them, they would tell these women that they are made in the image of God. They would tell them that they have inherent worth and dignity. They would tell them over and over that they are deeply loved. And these women had never heard anyone say these kinds of things to them before. In the five years since starting this ministry, Christy would say some of these women are now her closest friends. She plans events for these women and their children. She teaches them the Bible she loves them deeply, 
Some of them have come to faith in Jesus in the last five years. And every Sunday, Christy and her husband take groups of these women with them to church. And these women share with Christy how they're shocked when they're at church with her. Because each of them have stories of churches that they have visited over the course of their years that have either asked them to leave on the spot or have later told them that they're not welcome there. It's heartbreaking to think about that. Christie's pastor tells a story of being in town one time and he was being introduced to someone new and um, the name of the church that he pastored came up in the conversation and the man that he was meeting said, oh, yours is the church that welcomes prostitutes and sinners. The pastor said, yeah, that's my church. Redeemer, would this be true of our church? Would we be a people who make a habit of hanging out with those who might be least likely to be found in a church? Might we love them in such a way that it would point them to run home to the one who's desperately waiting to meet them and restore them? God delights in welcoming sinners. There's joy in heaven when even one sinner repents. A party worthy of robes and rings and fattened calves. Let's be a church that invites those kinds of celebrations. Amen. Here at Redeemer, each week we take a moment just to rest in God's word. And so um, let's take a few moments now to ask God how he would have us respond to what we have heard this morning.